0: 7 Studios. You're listening to the Lance J Radio Network. Paradise seven, seven, 7 Studios. studios. You were going to be here, John. I, I would have uh, been on my best behavior dressing. You know, it's 90 degrees outside, and unlike when I lived in Arizona, it's 90 degrees and humid. So I'm just—I'm getting used to the humidity of of the South. But I got John Gorman with me now. John, I got to thank you because you made my podcast popular. Really? This interview I had with you last fall. So I'm gonna—I'm gonna send you a bottle of champagne. Oh man! Because. When you interviewed with me last fall, that's when people started thinking. So, you know, you know how people believe what they see. People believe it's like, are you know, do you know John Gorman? Are you friends with John Gorman? I said, well, I've seen him speak on on different occasions. But there's so many people that want to get in touch with you for a myriad of things. And, um, you know, so it's always an honor to have you on the show. So I'm, Thanks, I'm broadcasting from from RISE, the social determinants of health, which I think is so important. You and I, we've talked before, I spent the first half of my healthcare career just pure HCC, revenue, risk adjustment, yep. in-home assessment. Really wasn't worried about if someone was healthy or not. As long as I got the code, I was, I was happy. But now healthcare many, in many ways by force because of COVID has moved into, health plans are actually concerned about the holistic nature. Of taking care of a member and really in right. not missing, not dropping the ball in that as much as they used to, and this is where John comes in. You know, John is the chairman of, of Nightingale Partners. For for those listening to WVL, uh, fourteen seventy here in Nashville, John Gorman is 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 he's worked in the Clinton administration. He he had uh, he was one of the founders of Gorman Health Group, who I've spent a lot of money uh, during my time as the <laughs> person that ran a Risk Adjustment Stars program, calling people from GHD. And really now he's he's in the space where where he's really locked in on, on SDOH programs and working with administrative bodies in in DC. So how how are you doing, sir? Man, it's it's always a doing pleasure great, to have man. you on on the show. But how are you doing? How's business?
1: Everything is rocking. Man. All right. We, uh, we should probably close three to five new uh, deals in the next sixty days man, with that's a couple fantastic. of big uh, insurers. That's fantastic. And uh, we're looking at projects around. Uh, broadband internet access, we're doing uh, diabetes interventions, right. we're doing some um, uh, maternal and child health initiatives for oh, wow. women of color. Wow. Uh, we're working on uh, the deployment of community health workers. Um, we've got a big stake in the ground down in Puerto Rico, All right. where the need, as you can imagine, is pretty we're still desperate. Still reeling from the so hurricane. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we're really excited about that one yeah. in particular. But then also going into um, deep into the state of Maryland, right in our right. backyard in D.C. where we're based, and uh, doing a, a major initiative around uh, maternal child health, uh, oh. diabetes intervention. I lived
0: in West Baltimore as a kid, so I know. Well, that's actually <laughs> where plenty, we're going. There's plenty of needs. We're in, going right West into Baltimore. your old neighborhood yeah, just, with I a big diabetes like intervention
1: right. and um, some stuff around opioid treatment as well.
0: Those are, those are communities that are really struggling out. The thing that I like about you, John, and there are, a lot of, there are a lot of big time healthcare executive names and people that have built castles and, and, and built up the industry. You really practice what you preach. You, and I say all the time on my show, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of companies that they talk about fairness and they talk about equity and they talk about supporting the LGBTQIA community. They talk about Latinx community, black community, but they they don't pay they don't pay their employees equally, they don't hire equally. And right. I always see you championing organizations that make diverse hires, that actually get their hands dirty and get into some of these communities. And you are not someone that holds your tongue. If you if you feel rather it's an administrative issue, rather it's a partisan issue. If you feel that one side is not doing what they need to be doing, you're, you're very quick to be open and honest. And I appreciate that because it's hard for a healthcare executives, especially people of your stature to take some of those hard stances because you're gonna make some enemies taking those hard stances and really being that voice of diversity. Cause I, I think that that's so important to really champion, you champion women. You champion African American people, sure. you champion the the LGBTQ community. That's important. And yeah. and where did you, where did you really get into your career where you felt comfortable just being open and honest about those I things? I
1: think it, it probably happened well before my career even began, brother. Yeah. I mean yeah. my um, I grew up in Detroit, right downtown, four blocks from Motown. All right. Um and I got this all from my mother, who okay. was Uh, uh, a primary care doc came out of Wayne State Med School. Um, You know, we always we lived in the projects downtown so that she could walk to work at Detroit Detroit Receiving. And uh, she you know, when you get raised by a strong single mom, you know, and she hammers those values into you, you carry those with you into your career. Right.
0: And Uh, I think that's a great story because there's perception that people that are that are leaders that have worked in administrative bodies with with presidents silver spoon in the mouth went to the best schools such and such and such and you come from very humble beginnings and i think you carry that with you in in your attitude and there's just a misconception so much disinformation and misinformation about healthcare uh, healthcare leadership and and i i just love i think that there was a new it was a position i believe it's cms and it was african-american woman and you are championing this on on linkedin you have a large platform And I just, I saw that and I was just like, man, you know, this is somebody practicing what they preach.
1: Well, I I was just delighted to see Chiquita brooks LaSure finally get confirmed uh, in the face of lots of racist opposition from the Republicans in the Senate. Um, She is the first confirmed black administrator of CMS. Mm. And... I just was astounded that it had taken this long. There, there had been one other black administrator, Bill Toby, who's a wonderful guy, Okay. but Bill was just acting. He had never gotten Senate confirmation. Oh, so okay. the fact that Chiquita got her Senate confirmation right. uh, was a really landmark event. And she couldn't be more qualified for that job as the administrator of CMS at this moment in history mm. um, than anybody I could have thought of. So I was just delighted that she finally got this job, and I thought we should all be singing it from the rooftops because no, we've got to have representation in these agencies that you know that dictate policy right. and that have all of the money that uh, that comes out of Medicare, Medicaid, and the Obamacare programs now yeah. in the hands of a black woman who spent her entire career on the administration of these programs. That's something to celebrate, man.
0: No, nah, that's that's uh, that's fantastic. Tell us about tell us about your podcast, man. I've been I've been listening. I've oh. been listening. It's like you have uh, you've had some heavy hitters lined up. John Gorman has his own his own podcast and, and obviously he has he does a great job. Well, has access to some of the best healthcare minds. Now I'm doing a lot of sophomoric um, comedy act type stuff, so but, oh, but cool. if you really want to if you really want to get into true healthcare policy. You want to listen to, to, to John's pockets, but I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. A big thanks, fan
1: man. Of it's called Health Equity Now, yep. and uh, we try to focus on those that are doing real innovations yep. in social determinants of health. Yep. Um, and it really is just a wonderful opportunity to, you know, to speak with folks like Dr. Nzinga Harrison, who's mm-hmm. the the chief medical officer at Eleanor Health. They're doing absolutely groundbreaking work in substance abuse and addiction treatment, mm. and uh, man, I'll tell you, I have never had a podcast guest make me break out and flop sweats. Mm. But Nzinga wow. is such an amazing physician, Wow! and you know, I thought addiction and substance abuse treatment was something I knew about, but I was sweating, dude, because she, she was smashing some of my preconceived notions wow. that were just plain wrong. Like I had always assumed that there was stigma in the black community around uh, addressing substance abuse or addiction or just mental health issues generally, and she put that right to rest she 's like there isn 't a stigma in the black community there 's access issues mm. to getting treatment for these conditions, mm. but there isn 't stigma in the community around addressing mental health and that was you know that was a really important point that it- she made so the the podcast is really just uh, an opportunity for me to try to highlight folks that are doing great work like Dr. Harrison is doing. Okay,
0: it's funny you talk about mental health, I mean, excuse me, you talk about addiction. When I lived in Seattle, I used to go to Vancouver a lot. When I lived in Seattle, Vancouver's an hour and a half. And yeah. There's this place called East Hastings Street in Vancouver. It's really like the dawn of the dead there. So in Vancouver, they have basically an open air drug market. Now you, you're from Maryland, so yeah. you're probably familiar with the TV show, The Wire. Oh, in, yeah. In season much. three on the wire, Bunny yeah. Colvin yeah. made West Baltimore open-air yeah. drug, open drug market. He said, we're going to put all of the drugs in these three blocks yep. and, and surround them with police. And, and well, it they, worked. They do, well, exactly. They did that in Vancouver. They did it in Vancouver. Now, if you're driving from from downtown Vancouver East, you go past East Hastings, it's hell. It's really hell. But all of the crime is in that area. The reason right. I bring it up, they, they brought different companies in there to do syringes and do mental health counseling and do all of these programs. So basically people that were in need, hey, we're gonna let you do drugs, we're not gonna make it a criminal offense and put you in jail and put you in the system, but we're actually gonna help you. You have the pastors come in, we have the the places that make sure you're not sharing needles so you have HIV spreading. We're gonna have people that can get you on some of these drugs and get you off heroin if you want to be off heroin and counsel. And it's had fantastic results. Now yep. this was ahead of its time from an American standpoint. This was years ago and Americans used to scoff and say that that's just a terrible thing. But now I think we're seeing it more circulating back into that where we're not demonizing people that are struggling right. with substance abuse, but we're more focused on setting up labs to help people that are in substance abuse in communities like West Baltimore. My, my, my father is from Southeast DC projects. They're all torn down now, but that's where my father is from. And those communities that are really ravaged by rampant drug use and limited resources for help, I I think, and I know that Nightingale is really focused on not just increasing awareness, but investing in those communities so that people can can get some of the help. And and that's very, very needed. I think
1: the biggest mistake we made as a country was to declare a drug war in the 80s. And to try to approach addiction as a law enforcement and interdiction issue and not as a public health issue that had to be addressed by reducing the demand for drugs rather than trying to fight a war against the supply of drugs. And I think we're really starting to come around full circle now where we're realizing that only by approaching addiction as what it is, which is a a healthcare matter, Uh, and that by reducing the demand for drugs, that, that you only—that's the only way to make progress in this wow. scourge across the country.
0: Now, where are you? Because I had a—I <laughs> love that. Hey, you're in a position where you can say this, but you're you're very open and honest about failures in the previous administration. I'm open and honest on my show about failures in the previous administration. Yeah. Also. What is the culture change? Because you're in D.C. So yep. you're where the sparks are flying. What is the difference that you've seen in culture over just the last six months since we've had a change in administration? What is the tenor of, of the attitude that's, that's permeating from, from the beltway?
1: Oh, I mean, you know, you got to remember, D.C. is the biggest Democratic enclave in right. the country. It I is. mean, 94% it is. of D.C. residents right. are Democrats. So it's been a sea change since the dark days of the former guy. Um, and you know, there's just great optimism and hope it's, you know, it's faltering a little bit given the, this, you know, the steely resistance of Mitch McConnell against everything that Biden's trying to advance. But I mean, I think it's really kind of reflective of what you're seeing with Biden at the G seven summit right now, which is that, you know, uh, the vast majority of the world feels like America's back back. And, um, for my part, Working in health equity and working in social determinants, you know, seeing a president finally making health equity a priority is about the most refreshing thing that, right. that I've seen in the last 30 years I've lived in DC. So we're, we're just thrilled about what Biden's doing and, you know, hope that the Democrats can really get more of this agenda done through this wall of resistance in the Senate. Um, but especially before the midterms come up, where we expect a wipeout for the Democrats.
0: Now, do you think, as a, so I'm just asking your honest opinion, do you think, because when I'm doing shows and I have callers and people call in, people, people bring this point up, do you think that Joe Biden is up for the job from a health standpoint? Do you think, because oh, yeah. a, a lot of people are worried about that. Can he hold up for four years? Oh, yeah. Can he hold up for eight years? There's no and if question. he can't hold up, do you think that Kamala Harris is ready to step in? And and run the country? Do you do you you have some concerns? Yes. Okay.
1: Now I know Joe personally. His granddaughter played lacrosse with my daughter at Sidwell. Joe is the most dutiful grandfather I've ever seen. He showed up at every single game with his whole Secret Service detail and his two dogs who are now in the White House. And Joe is—I gotta say—is the most vibrant, healthy, eighty-something-year-old. I know, and I work in elder care. The guy is sharp, he's fit. um, He is fit. And he's spent his whole life preparing for this moment. So I don't have any concerns about Joe's health whatsoever. And when you look at what this guy is accomplishing and the schedule he's keeping, there is no sign whatsoever that this is a guy in his 80s.
0: Well, he's not playing golf every week. for. for yeah, well, thank you actually, for that, say the taxpayers. Actually, actually out. Uh, who spent,
1: God, how many it. millions of dollars on the former guy's golf habit. <laughs> Doing do the um, job. That's, uh,
0: that's, that's I think awesome. he's uh,
1: he's an amazing guy, and uh, I, I don't have any concerns about his health whatsoever. Oh, that's great.
0: My last question for you, I I appreciate you coming in, and spending 15 minutes talking with me. Uh, You know, Mr. Gorman, it's just always a pleasure uh, finally meeting you in person. Do you think, healthcare, we're approaching 20% of GDP. I'm not an actuary, but I've been in this business long enough, Mm. that's not sustainable. We cannot continue to have, we can't get to 20, and 22, 25, 27% of GDP, that can't happen. There's only so much money to go around, there's only so much money we can print. Do you think, and this is a question I'm asking a lot of leaders, do you think that at some point we're pulling a plug on this and going to single payer, going to more of a Canadian type of system where it's just government controlled, cost containment, all this money that's thrown I've told I've yep. told I've told the missus John, I've said, look, we gotta save our money because this, this risk adjustment train ain't gonna, it ain't gonna last forever. At no, some point, someone, right. someone with some common sense is gonna come in and say, what, you're giving people $5,000 $5, a month to, to get sicker? It does, that does not make any sense. Right. Do you think that we'll have to change and go to a single payer system? And, and if, if so, what are your thoughts about that?
1: Well, there's, this is something I've worked on for a lot of my career. Um, I think just broadly, the politics of single payer, like a true single payer like Canada has, is just not in the cards in America. Okay. Because uh, the competitive the closest, forces, I or think, no, it's. Um, uh, I think it's because the Republicans have done such a fine ah. job of convincing the public that this is socialism right. in healthcare. I Which think the ridiculous. closest we'll get to it is Medicare Advantage for all. For all, okay with a privately administered single payer system.
0: Kind of what ALC is talking about. And
1: what Buttigieg was uh, talking about during the campaign, what Kamala Harris was talking about during the campaign. The the reality is that's probably about as close as we'll get in this country. And that would be just fine. I mean, that would be a uniquely American solution to this problem. But to bend the curve of the cost trajectory we're on, with as you pointed out, 20% of GDP going to healthcare. The only way we deal with that is by directly addressing poverty mm, and racism in our healthcare system, which is attributable to 60-80% right. of what we spend on healthcare in this country. Nah, I mean that's there's uh, a lot we can do in the interim before you get to right. some sort of single payer solution.
0: Yeah, I mean I I, I agree. It's funny. Um, I do I do some campaigns here in Nashville in the African American community and I've had leaders from the African-American community come on this show, come in my, my studio, and have told me flat out, they said, we don't want to take the vaccine, I'm not going to support the vaccine, I don't believe in the vaccine, the Tuskegee experiment, it's, it's, it's skewed. I've had people from rural white communities say the same thing, sure. Latinx communities, Yep. and they thought that I was going to shame them for not agreeing, and I said, hey, it's my job as a healthcare leader to use what little platform I have and, and what little juice and pull that I have to educate you and to build trust. Because it's not, if I just want to come in and get a shot in your arm so we're achieving herd immunity, I'm just checking the box. But then I don't really care what happens to you after. That's part of the problem. That's why there's a lack of trust yep. in the system uh, because of racism. Well, because... and it was also
1: politicized right. too by the yeah, former guy. But right. I think the most powerful stat I've seen was the one this week, which is 97 percent of doctors are now vaccinated wow enough said wow no, mic that's, drop.
0: <laughs> that's, that's definitely a mic drop well it's always a pleasure to, to have Thanks, john brothers. gorman it's on the show man I, I just love what you're doing and, and continue Thanks. to support his podcast and and to follow him he's one of the best follows on linkedin that's just really always dropping knowledge and gems of wisdom uh, about the industry and it, and smacking people who are racist <laughs> in the face and saying bleep you to their face. I I love that and and just continue to lead and and show us the way. Thanks so much. It's
1: my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you. Thanks for being here. Okay, thanks.
0: Come
1: to see me off. My nephew. Boy was always a disappointment. But I treated you like a son.
0: I wasn't made to play the son. But my supply. The good dope. The Greeks. They cool with it.
1: Proposition, then I just step out the way. You'll never hear from me again.
0: I just disappear. Joe, you'll be up in mischief in no time. Truth is, you won't be able to change up any more than me. Close your eyes. It won't hurt. None. You are listening to the Lance J Radio Network. James Lewis. Detective Lee found herself inside the suspect's home in Burbank and found a gigantic slide, the department said, adding that the covered car parts were also found. It goes on to say that the Pasco Police Department posted a photo showing a grinning Lee sitting atop of the slide in a child's bedroom with the caption, Detective Lee strikes a pose with the recovered slide. All I want to know is using my, um, my David Caruso voices, well, Rampage. I wonder if the judge is going to let the perpetrator slide. You are listening to the Lance J Radio Network. Paragon Paragon, 7 Studios. You don't know me. Probably never will.
1: But I need you to do something for me. Something? That could literally change everything. You'll never get a thank you card. And yet I need you to do it. And if that weren't enough, I need you to do it as soon as you are able to. If you do this for me, I'll do it for you. And for every single person you love. Deal?
0: This is our shot to leave COVID behind.